One of the things that really stands out was the murder, the capture, kidnapping, and murder of Reuben Flint. Reuben was the executive vice president of Farmers Bank in Union Point. Well-respected man, very active in the Methodist Church in Union Point, loved by everybody, had a family. His wife uh, taught school, had two uh, beautiful kids that were growing up. Every day he would go home for lunch. And this particular day was no different. And these two guys had cased out the, the bank, and they knew that. And so they uh, went to his house. He was in making his lunch, and one of them came to the side door, and it was kind of the carport door, knocked on it and asked to uh, see him and said he wanted money. And Reuben said, well, go down to the bank, and I'll come down there later. Well, that was not the intent. They ended up going in, and... Um, they killed him. It was very brutal. It was very sad. Killed him in his home. And so what happened was they went into the bank and they had Reuben's wallet. And they went in and they said, I think the term was $50,000 and we have kidnapped Reuben Flint and we're not going to give him back. The lady hit the button that goes off in the city hall that says, we've got a robbery. And when the button went off, the city clerk called my dad. I was patrolling around, and the uh, city clerk, he, he kind of easy talking about it all. He said, call and go by the bank. I think uh, they are robbing it now. <laughs> he said it about like that. But dad's response was, well, that somebody hit that button again, so call down there and make sure they got a robbery. The city clerk called the bank. The lady in the back said, it really is a robbery. It's a guy in here. He says he's holding uh, Mr. Flint hostage. So Dad immediately went down there. He immediately went to the bank because he didn't know where Reuben was. He didn't know anything about it. I knew, I knew something really was going on. So I just wheeled my car around and took off down there with my lights on. I didn't blow my siren because I didn't want to let him know I was coming. I jumped out of the car and got my shotgun. And went to the door and saw the guy in there. And so he just backed up on the outside because he knew he had to come out. I started going. Then I, then I thought I better not because it's, he had to come out the front door. Bank doesn't have a back door. Though. That's right. I got out of the car. I stood there on the sidewalk. And one lady started in that bank. I said, don't go in there. It's it, it, it being robbed now to get back. She go off and say to every man, come back. I said, don't go in there. I run several people off trying to go in the bank. At the time, I was standing back with a shotgun. With the lights going, with the lights on, and standing back with a shotgun, and I had to run them. I couldn't keep people out of the bank. <laughs> and, with, and even the train come out, and they stopped me looking at me. I looked down the street, and the people were coming out the store and all up the, up the street. You don't know what's going on. One nothing saw me standing there with my shotgun. I stepped up on the, on the sidewalk next to the bank, and I waited. And the guy came out holding the money and holding the hostage. And he had the vice president with him. Had been. Had, had him with him. He, and he told me, I ain't going to police out there. He said, come on, go with me. And carried him out there. And Ben knew me. He knew what I'd do. And Dad just turned, because he didn't see him coming out of the door and put shotgun under his chin. I said, freeze. When he did, boy, he threw both hands straight up in the air. And said, drop, let, let. Ben, go back in the bank and drop the money. I'm getting old, and I'm a little shaky. And if you do anything, I'm going to blow your head off. He walked over there. I said, walk over there to that building. He did. I said, spread your hands out on it. And he did. 
his freedom feet So I walked up and I took my pistol out, cocked it, and put it beside his head. I said, if you bat out, I'm gonna blow your brains out. Dad handcuffed him and took him to the jail and they got down there and he said, okay, where's Reuben? I said, put that gun on my car, I'm gonna kill you. Growing up in Greene County, strong knit community in Union Point. She just started taking her clothes off. And the guy came out holding the money and holding the hostage. You better out, I'm gonna blow your brains out. In and out of the mental hospital. Insulin shock, electroshock, even lobotomy. If you gotta kill him, it's okay, we're done with him. Policemen don't get the respect that they used to get. To make a good policeman, you got to love people. It's time that we stood up for them. It's time that we supported them. They have their drive to stay killed. This is Policing Green, a policeman at the sunset of the Jim Crow South. Welcome to Green County and the town of Union Point, Georgia. We're going back to a time when the doctrine of separate but equal ruled the South. This is the story of Carlton Lewis, who was a successful businessman in sales, a dry cleaning business, and a filling station. But he abruptly quit the private sector at age 48 and embarked on a 22-year career as a lawman who never backed down from a fight. For nine years, Carlton served as a sheriff's deputy before taking over as Union Point's chief of police. Our story begins with a cassette tape. Well, I was in a, a dry cleaning business. Nearly two hours of the chief telling his life story, beginning in the Navy of World War II all the way to his retirement from law enforcement. I've been blessed. I have been so, so blessed. Tom Lewis is the chief's son. At the time of the recording, he was chief of staff to Georgia Governor Joe Frank Harris and later served as a senior vice president for Georgia State University. Carlton wouldn't recognize Greene County law enforcement today. Dr. Hal McAllister is a retired professor of astronomy. He met Tom at GSU and they collaborated to write the book Policing Green. You chase them down and, you know, lock them up. Johnny Grimes worked with Carlton when Johnny was a rookie deputy. He would go on to serve in the Georgia State Patrol, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel. I'm Drew, and this... I'm thinking it could have been you, Carlton. ...is Mars, my co-producer. That's Mars like the planet Mars. She's the voice of the book. Tom and Hal wrote the book to tell the story of a Southern policeman in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a trying time in the history of the state of Georgia. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes tragic, sometimes just unbelievable. By the way, these stories are in no particular order, so you might hear one from when he was chief, followed by one from his earlier term as a deputy. And sometimes the tape is hard to understand. We'll pop in here and there with narration. You've just heard part one of The Murder of Reuben Flint. You'll hear part two in the next episode. Up next, we tell the story of Willie the Mental Patient. And wait until you hear the story of someone the chief calls the streaker. Policing Green is sponsored by Team Blue Line, a 501c3 nonprofit that helps the families of law enforcement officers who have selflessly given their lives and officers who have been injured mentally or physically in the line of duty. Here's the chief. When I came out of service, I was, you know, was in business and, and went in two or three different kind of business. Then I wasn't completely satisfied. I would train to fight, been fighting, and that was my ambition. I wanted to, wanted to have a drive to do something, and, uh, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every minute I have policemen, but I have seen lots of dangers, and, and I have uh, helped lots of folks, and uh, I've pulled through lots of different things, but I had a drive to do that, I wanted to do it. And you got to, to make a good policeman, you got to love people. You got to want to help people. All right, if a person 
take advantage of somebody. And if you're a good policeman, you, it makes you mad and you want to take up for him. You want to take his place. Then you have ambition to punish the guilt where you can take care of the innocent. Greene County, Georgia is an hour's drive east of Atlanta out I-20. Founded in 1786, the county seat is at Greensboro, which today has a population of around 3,700. If you head out U.S. Highway 278 from Greensboro for seven miles, you'll come to Union Point, a small town with an area of about two square miles. Union Point had some 1,600 inhabitants in 1960, and the town has pretty much remained that size ever since. For decades, life was good in Union Point, and the nearly 20 million pairs of socks produced each year there at the Union Manufacturing Knitting Mill gave steady work to hundreds of folks in the area. During the 1960s, a walk along Sibley Avenue in the long block between Scott and Fluker Streets would take you past retail businesses where mill workers could spend some of the earnings from their shifts at the mill. Taking a short detour down Scott Street brings you to City Hall, which also housed the police department and the office of Chief Lewis. Turning back and continuing northwest along Sibley, you'd walk past Rhodes Drug Store with its competing union pharmacy right next door. Further along, you'd find Morgan Furniture, a hardware store, a small department store, and an auto parts store. A glance down Fluker Street as you cross it would show you the Union Movie Theater. But straight ahead is the Farmers Bank, touting that it had proudly served Union Point since 1911. His name was Willie. Willie was one that was in and out of the mental hospital, and he was known by the law enforcement that he was, occasionally would cause problems. He was a very large gentleman, very disturbed gentleman, had uh, recently been released from Central State Hospital. About 50 miles south of Union Point, the state of Georgia had established its sole mental hospital back even before the Civil War. It was at Millersville, and then back then, that was the state mental hospital for the state of Georgia. And it was a huge, huge place. It was enormous. It had 200 or so buildings and could house as many as 13,000 patients. Staff who had little or no training in psychiatry would routinely perform insulin shock, electroshock, even lobotomies. So patients would go home that were mere shadows of their former selves. Some of them lived there all the time. They never let them out. And some of them would go there for a while until the counselors would say, well, they're better, they can go home. You know, Willie was one of those. They'd say, well, he's gotten better, we'll let him out. And so they let him out, and then he'd get in trouble a few weeks, and they'd take him back. And so there was a couple instances where Daddy would have to go down and arrest him. And a couple of times, Willie was belligerent and didn't want to go, and so Dad would have to get him and, and handcuff him. He got a call that said they were having a disturbance at his parents' residence. One of the Union Point police officers had gone out. Willie had jumped on him and broke his arm, and uh, they needed us to come down to City Hall so we could go out and arrest Willie. So when we got to City Hall, his parents were there, mother and father, and they were visibly upset, in which they relayed to us that they were tired of him. They needed to get him out of the house. Said he'd come in, he stopped taking his meds, and it was in August, and the heat was like 90 to 100 degrees. But inside that house where he was, it was a two-story house. Temperature was maybe 95 to 100 degrees, but he had gone through the house and closed all the windows. And what upset him is when the father went through and started letting the windows back up because it was hot in the house. So Willie didn't like it. So he jumped on the father and beat the father up. The mother didn't like uh, Willie beating up the father, so she jumped in, he beat the mother up. So they were both at City Hall, both beat up. So they told us, if you gotta kill him, it's okay, we're done with him. 
<laughs> this is their son they're talking about. So if you got to kill him, shoot him, whatever you need to do. You know, okay, we're not going to shoot him, we're not going to kill him, but we're going to go out and see if we can get him quiet down and get him back down to Central State. We walk up on the porch, and uh, Deputy Lewis, he approached the front door, and I stood off to the side, and he knocked on the door. And apparently Willie was right on the other side of the door. Deputy Lewis says, Willie, were you in there? You heard this voice from behind the door. He said, yeah. <laughs> so he says, come out here, we need to talk to you. Willie said then, he says, you need to get off my porch. Carlton said, no, we're not going to get off the porch. Now, you know, beat your mom up and stuff. We're going to have to straighten things out and come on out and talk with her. Willie said, I'm not going to tell you again to get off my porch. And about that time, the door came down. And at about that time, he came out, he hit the door. Willie did, knocked the whole door off the hinges. He came out with the door knocked out of its frame because he was a big guy. And it just came right on top of Dad. I mean, it didn't fall. It came down forward on top of Deputy Lewis. And it was Willie, the door, and Dad. As you can imagine, somewhat of a confrontation. I said, well, I guess I better jump in and save him. You know? <laughs> it's a hard time. Willie was a humongous human being, strong, and he was all sweaty from being in that hot house, and he didn't have on a shirt. And any time you touched him, your hand just slipped off. So we're all wrestling around on the porch there trying to get Willie down. So we finally get him down on the floor and drag him off to the edge of the porch with his head hanging off the porch. Carl Lewis, he takes his mace and starts spraying him in the face so it doesn't faze him. So I give him mine, so he's basically, we've emptied two cans of mace on this guy and it hasn't affected him, you know? And he's still thrashing around. So by that time, two or three other officers got there, including Sheriff White, and I guess it was about five of them with Union Point PD and everybody. We finally got Willie down and got him cuffed and got him in the car. Everybody's sweating, clothes torn off. So the sheriff says, you all need to just take him straight to Millersville, down to Central State. Don't bother about bringing him by the jail because that's where we got to go anyway. And we already got him arrested and in the car. Let's don't fight him anymore today. So we take off to Central State. We got about five miles down the road, and I'm thinking it's like, you know, during the tussle and everything, we had to cuff this guy. I always like to make sure that these cuffs are not on too tight because they will cut your circulation off and they're very uncomfortable anyway. So I leaned back and I said, Willie? I said, we're going to stop up here and loosen them cuffs up so they won't be so tight. And I'm looking in the rearview mirror and he looking at it too. He says, if you know what's good for you, you'll leave the cuffs on. No problem, okay? <laughs> So, so we, we, we went on down to Central State. They got him to the hospital, and he'd been that crazy, you know, with the police officers fighting him. I mean, rough, tough fighting. They had a chute there where you drive through to unload patients. So we drove in. And Willie had been in the hospital so many times that one of the counselor aides at the hospital, when he got there and said, I've got Willie, we're bringing him back. This little bitty little guy comes out in a white jacket and uh, had his pens and everything. He says, who you got there? I said, we've got, uh, we've got Willie back here. So I know Willie. He says, Willie, get out of the car. So I looked at Carl and he looked at me and said, okay. We opened the door and Willie gets out. He said, Willie, do you know who I am? Willie said, yes, yes, sir. I know exactly who you are. This guy looks at me and says, take the cuffs off him. I looked at Carl and he looked back at me. So I had this guy the key. I said, you take him off him. <laughs> you know? 
took the handcuffs off, and he walked in like a five-year-old child. And Willie is just as calm as he can be. So Willie go in and get on those scales. So he marches right in and gets on the scales. So the door is closed. And that's the end of Willie for us. Every once in a while in Union Point, the chief would do something that today would be considered a legal no-no. Tom tells us about one of those times. I remember one day sitting in, in the city hall and this car with Connecticut tags drove through. And uh, Dad looked up and he walked out there and he stopped him. And I'm thinking, what is he doing? And they stopped and he said, who are y'all? And they told him, I see you from out of state. And they said, yes, sir. Why are you in Union Point? And I'm thinking, what on earth is going on here? And they told him they were visiting so-and-so in Union Point. They were going to be there for three or four days. And his response was, we have a peaceful little community. We're going to keep it that way. We appreciate you being here. And we trust that you abide by all the laws. Have a good visit. Thank you for talking to me. He wanted to know how long they were going to be there. He said, how long are you going to be here? And they said, oh, about four or five days, three or four or five days. He said, I, I want to know when you leave. And they drove off. And I said, Dad, is that a little bold? He said, this is a small community. We like to know who's coming in. I want to know who's going out. And if you're visiting somebody, I want to know who you're visiting. If they're riding around and they got tags like that and they're not visiting anybody, generally we better keep an eye on them. Find the book Policing Green on Amazon. That's green with an extra E at the end. In there, you'll find someone who doesn't make an appearance in our podcast because he's a fictional character. As a scientist, I'm pretty much hardwired to give lots of details when I'm trying to explain something. So when it came time to describe the appeals of the killers of Reuben Flint and Officer Tommy Rowry, I did just that. I explained it in lots of detail. But when my daughter Merritt, who is a lawyer, read that stuff, she said it was really boring and suggested instead I create a character who could talk it all out with Carlton back and forth. Now that was a brilliant idea, and so I came up with Judge Ellis Buchanan, who would know the law and could explain it to Carlton. I think it worked really well. Of course, in those days, I know y'all know back in those days, you didn't have no much for police force. Yeah. We had one sheriff there, and there was two deputies. And uh, just had one deputy, and they and asked me what I considered. And was there some reason they asked you? Well, I, back in my background, they knew me. I was, uh, I wasn't all that rough, but I was, you know, and they all knew all my background of the service and everything. And uh, no, I was honest and straight, and and uh, I go to church, Christian, you know. And yet I have that drive to take care of people. So that's the reason uh, how I got into it. And it was 17 other people had the name in, but the but the job had the application. In. I think it'd be interesting to point out that when you first went on the sheriff's department, you took what about half a salary cut, and what you were making mm. with the standard company at that time. Oh, yeah. You were top yeah. salesman? That's right. And you took a, how big, wouldn't it, how, how much the salary cut did you take? Well, about half, just about half. But I was satisfied. I was satisfied. You know, I was doing something I wanted to do. Yeah, I was doing something I wanted, enjoyed doing it. When we get up every morning, I didn't know where I was going to Atlanta, I didn't know where I was going to Reedsville, I didn't know where we were going to run prison that day with dogs, I didn't know 
uh, what did ever, whatever we gonna do, every day was a new day. Yeah. And that's what I'd enjoy. Team Blue Line is a nationwide nonprofit that helps the families of law enforcement officers who have selflessly given their lives and officers who have been injured mentally or physically in the line of duty. The Jim Crow laws that were enacted in the states of the old Confederacy well after the Civil War that were enabled by political compromises and even a Supreme Court decision were based upon a principle of being separate but equal. Of course, the equal part was a joke, but the separate part was pursued by the states and their legislatures with vigor, very effectively, in fact, and were only done away with by the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed by President Johnson in Congress. A lot of people remember back in the 70s, streaking became a big deal. Kids at University of Georgia were taking off their clothes and running through crowds, and so streaking became a big deal. Well, there was this lady who had some mental issues in Union Point, and she would she would do that. She got away and uh, she just started taking her clothes off and streaking. And you couldn't, we couldn't do a thing, would we? And it'd be broad daylight, downtown Union Point, and she'd take all the clothes off, and she didn't streak, she just walked. And she'd walk downtown, and they'd call Dad. Call me and say, call your streaker camera down. He'd go down there, he'd have a raincoat, and he'd throw it over her and say, now come on, called her by name, took her to sale, lock her up, called the middle institution. A lot of times they would check her in. They'd keep her about two or three days. She'd get out two or three days later. She'd take her clothes off, and they'd go to calling me. Here come the street. One day. Uh, one of the policemen called and said, we got another problem. She went into one of the stores down here and took all the clothes off. And I had to arrest her, and I got her in the cell, and you need to come down here. So they had given her the coat. They kept a coat running that they'd put over. So she had the coat on. Dad walked back to the cell where she was, and she was sitting down. She had this coat on. He said, is that you? She stood up and dropped the coat. I said, John, man, I didn't even recognize you with your clothes on. She said, this is me. I said, yeah, that's you all right. She, was, she always lightened up life around the, around the town. One day she came back. She said, Carl, I want to take me so-and-so. I said, I can't take you nowhere. She said, well, I'll handle that. And in 10 minutes, I got five calls going. Your streak are going down the street. Well, she take off everything she got? Take off ever, Back in those days, one man would take place at about 10 now. What about seven, eight, really? One man. Back in those days, we were working oh, 12, 15 hours a night. I work all during the day and maybe patrol to midnight. Then I have went home a many times at 12 o'clock at night and go to bed and there'd be some fight going on down there somewhere in the county and I can hear Sheriff Wild now and call me up you know talk so easy call go down to White Plain they having a hot supper down there one man done got cut all the pieces go in there and check on them see what, what's wrong <laughs> ain't no doing since I've been police I bet y'all done trained 50 or 100 policemen. You've got to want to help folks. And it made me mad to see anybody to, uh, run over anybody or take advantage of anybody. It, that got to be in you before, before, back in those days, before you could be a policeman. 
like you said, now you get a bunch of men together and they go in there. Yeah, I have seen them call them to take charge and go back and get shot. Huh, I ain't going up there, I ain't going back and get shot. <laughs> See, now that's not a policeman. He, he just got a job. Back in those days, you didn't have to go to the police academy. But the only thing police academy tell you, they just show you uh, your rights and the citizen rights. Yeah. You do that. They don't train a man. I'm sitting you a man up there, and I said, I don't know where you're going to make a policeman or not. And I said, I want you to take him and make a policeman out there. He said, Conan, I don't take a man to make a policeman out there. You send me a policeman, I'll help you train. <laughs> and that's about right. Yeah. You don't make a policeman. A good policeman is born and not made. It got to be in you. A word police work got to be in you just like a sport work. If you're a sport fan, you and you love to play baseball, play uh, golf, it's in you. You want to get out there and do that. It's that's that's sport. You want to do it. police same way. You got to want to get out there, not do it for the money, because you don't make that much money. You got to it got to be in you to want to do that, to look after the folks. A couple of years ago, I said, you know, somebody, we need to stand up for the good policeman. You know, I would say this. Dad was not an extraordinary policeman. He was not a a policeman uh, that uh, just stood out above everybody. He was an ordinary cop. And we failed to realize what an ordinary cop goes through. And look at where we are today. There have been numerous mass shootings. We've seen kids die. We've seen people die senselessly. That were just had nothing to do with the confrontation, but they're in the middle of a place where bullets are flying and they get hit by a stray bullet and they're dead. And you've got policemen that are afraid even to go into certain areas to help these people because they get overcome. The sad thing that we are dealing with right now, the very sad thing that we are dealing with is that the policemen don't get the respect that they used to get. They don't get the support, the loyalty that they used to get. We have a bad incident in another state where a policeman did something wrong. And so it changes the whole country. We all turn against policemen and we want to take their funding. We want to take their cars. We want to take their equipment and we want to turn our back on them? Where have we come? We are better than this. And that's what one of the things that the book, Policing Green, is about an ordinary cop that worked in an ordinary community. And many of the leaders were making the right decisions, and we've drifted from that. Today, our policemen are afraid. It's time that we stood up for them. It's time that we supported them. What have we come to? Why have we gotten to this point? If, if we are allowing one bad apple to affect those who protect our freedoms that way. In the next episodes of Policing Green. Shot him in the stomach and he failed and they shot him again. Charlie came up from the ground with the pistol and shot at daddy twice. 
point-blank range and missed him. L.L. Wyatt killed half a dozen such men, all of whom had fired at him first. Now, I've never arrested a peacock and don't want to have to arrest one. We're not reaching and going by the house that he pulled him out. Maybe one, two o'clock in the morning, go in and purse these jug joints. That's where a lot of the fights occur. If I want to eat a biscuit in my office, I'm going to eat a biscuit in my office. And I reach and got that damn gun and snatched it out of his hand. Charlie Young, who committed the beating and shooting murder of Reuben Flint, was convicted and sentenced to death. It was not uncommon occasionally for me to come home and in our carport would be 10, 12, 15 gallons of moonshine. Why, stand right behind me, done shot him in the damn back. You are afraid, but you never want them to know you're afraid. Your daddy hit me. <laughs> Team Blue Line is a national nonprofit organization that exists to help the families of fallen law enforcement officers and officers who have been injured, both physically and mentally, in the line of duty. Like Tom says, we never will forget. Visit TeamBlueLine.org. Hello, I'm David Rogers uh, with the Atlanta Police Department. Back in February, I was injured in the line of duty. Um, still kind of in recovery, but this here is to thank Team Blue Line for the assistance they provided me during my recovery and all of the support they've given me uh, throughout. So I'd like to thank Chad and Team Blue Line for everything they've done and uh, look forward to continue working with them in the future.